Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, podcasting to you today from the Red Beard Studio on traditional Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, also known as Ottawa, Canada. As I record, the forsythias beside my house have just turned yellow. The snows disappeared finally after a freak hot spell when the temperature reached over 30 degrees. And then there were days of flurries, followed by a week of rain. Now, though, the leaves are budding on the trees, the tulips are reaching leaves above the soil. It's also the season of mud here in Canada and, well, in Ukraine and Russia, too. This is episode 25 of Beyond Barbarossa, and it returns to the spring of 1942. You see, since the start of the podcast, I've tried to track the episodes roughly with the development of the history of the war in the East over time. For example, I launched the podcast on the 22nd of June, 2022, with a description of the events in Eastern Europe 81 years earlier, June 22nd, 1941, the largest land invasion in history over the border between the Third Reich and the USSR. And since then, I've tried to roughly track the podcast with the history at the time of the year, with uh, some notable exceptions. But overall, for example, um, last summer, I described the Battle of Smolensk, or the first Battle of Smolensk. In the fall, I covered Operation Typhoon, because that happened in October November of 1941. In December 1941, when the German forces halted, it was December 2022 when I described those events. And the podcast episodes that happened in January, February of this year, 2023, um, were about the general counteroffensives all along the front lines from Ukraine to Leningrad. Now, we ended the narrative episodes before that wonderful conversation with David Stahl in the last episode in March 1942, with the Germans suffering from the Russian winter, or more precisely, from their lack of preparation for winter. Because we all know there's no such thing as bad weather. There's just bad clothing choices. With the Germans obviously suffering, though, the Soviet high command, which meant Stalin, ordered counterattacks all along the front lines from Leningrad in the north to the Black Sea in the south. In his broad view yet detailed account, The Second World War, author Antony Bivor described Marshal Georgi Zhukov, the most capable Soviet general of the war to this point, as being horrified by Stalin's plan for these wide offensives all along the front lines. Zhukov believed that the Red Army should concentrate on driving the Germans away from Moscow and that it lacked the reserves for a widespread offensive. Stalin apparently told him to, quote, carry out your orders, end quote. So a number of operations aimed at breaking the siege of Leningrad and encircling the Germans west and south of Moscow went ahead. And as described in the last narrative episodes, they all failed. So today, as a Forsythia's bloom in glorious yellow here in central Canada, we're going to take a closer look 
at the spring of 1942 in Ukraine and southern Russia. This is the time of the Bezdorizhia, roadlessness, or season of no roads, called in Russian Rasputitsa. The period when in spring and fall, the rains turn the fertile black soils into thick, cloying mud. But eventually, it dries out again, and the hot mud turns to hard, extremely fertile black earth, said to be the most fertile in the world. And that's made Ukraine the breadbasket of Europe and the world. But I digress. So, May 1942. The roads are travelable again. In the south, between the city of Kharkiv and the Sea of Azov, the Soviets are going to try another offensive to try to push the Germans back. But during the winter, the German command wasn't just waiting for the snow to melt and the rains to end and the ground to dry. No, they were busy rebuilding the Wehrmacht, bringing in more supplies, new tanks and airplanes, in general rebuilding their strength. And they were working on a plan to follow up Operation Barbarossa. They were determined to finish the USSR and Bolshevism once and for all. The USSR in short, is going to get really hot in the spring of 1942. Now let's zoom out and take a look at what else is happening in the war at this point, the spring of 1942. I'm going to back up a bit to the 1st of January. I know that's before the spring, but I didn't mention it before and I think I should now. It's important. So on the 1st of January, 1942, 47 national governments signed the Declaration by United Nations. This was the big four, that is the US, the UK, the USSR, and China, as well as um, the British dominions of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, governments in exile, such as Yugoslavia, Poland, and Norway, and more, and American states in the Caribbean and, and South America as well, all signed this uh, declaration of opposition to fascism and Nazism. This declaration became the basis for the United Nations a few years later. However, that sounds great, but on the ground, the axis is ascendant. By the spring of 1942, in the Northern Hemisphere, Japan was taking Malaya, Borneo, Sumatra, and more of the Dutch East Indies. Also the Philippines, Burma. They even attack Ceylon, now called Sri Lanka. Singing an Australian destroyer, the HMAS Vampire, and a Royal Navy aircraft carrier, the HMS Hermes. This is the second happy time for German U-boats in the Atlantic because they can operate almost at will even up to the eastern seaboard of the United States. On May 12, 1942, U-boat 553 sank a British cargo ship, the Nicoya, in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, starting the Battle of the St. Lawrence, a part of the war fought in Canadian waters. By 1942, Malta became the most heavily bombed place in the entire Second World War. Even so, it managed to hold out through supply convoys being sunk, losing so much of that vital cargo, food, fuel, medicine, and ammunition. 
On the 20th of March, 47 Spitfires made it to Malta or were delivered by a ship, the USS Wasp, accompanied by British warplane warships. But they were almost immediately destroyed by Axis bombers. Um, there's a great series of podcasts all about Malta and its place on the, in the war on Ray Harris's History of World War II podcast. So um, if you want more information about that, really, I advise you, once you've finished this episode of Beyond Barbarossa, go listen to Ray Harris's History of World War II podcast. From the 4th to the 8th of May, there was the Battle of the Coral Sea. This is the first big confrontation between the navies of Imperial Japan and the United States. It was a tactical victory. It's called by most historians for a tactical victory for Japan because it sank the major U.S. fleet carrier Lexington. Now, there were some bright spots for the Allies. Uh, for example, on the 9th of May, the USS Wasp and the HMS Eagle delivered another shipment of Spitfires to Malta, and this time they got them into service. Uh, and that began to turn the tide in the air battle over Malta, forcing the Axis to end daylight bombing raids on the island. This became a major turning point in the North African campaign. But there will be more setbacks from the Allies in that theater. There's another bright spot. On May 26th, the UK and the USSR signed the Anglo-Soviet Treaty, which guaranteed that neither side would agree to peace with the Axis without the other's approval, right? So no separate peace. On the 27th of May, Czechoslovak soldiers parachuted into Prague by the British in Operation Anthropoid, fatally wounded Reinhard Heydrich, the brutal head of the Reich Security Main Office and prosecutor of some of the worst atrocities in occupied Europe. He was the man credited with the so-called final solution of the Jewish question. On the 26th of May, though, uh, Field Marshal Rommel, the Desert Fox, launched a spring offensive at the Gazala Line in Libya, west of Tobruk. His Africa Corps outflanked the Free French at Bir Hakim, dispersed the British 3rd Indian Motorized Brigade and penetrated deep toward Egypt and their goal, the Suez Canal. Seizing it would cut off vital supplies from India for Britain and from farther east as well. By the end of May, the Africa Corps had encircled the British 150th Brigade, shortened their own supply lines and used British minefields as their own defense. The British forces were in a cauldron, in other words, surrounded. And by the 17th of June, Africa Corps surrounded Tobruk, the British fortress on the North African coast, capturing the city as well as 35,000 Australian soldiers on the 21st of June. The road to Egypt was now open to the Germans. Back in the USSR, while all this is happening in other theaters of war, and winter in the Beragia or mud season prevent much military activity, at least in theory, and the Germans in the USSR are in a defensive posture, as I mentioned, the German high command is making plans. According to Antony Beaver in the Second World War, 
By the end of winter 1942, Panzer divisions were re-equipped, reinforcements were absorbed into units, and ammunition dumps were prepared for a summer offensive. Stalin and the Stavka, though, were convinced that the Germans were going to launch another offensive toward Moscow. They based all their preparations on this idea. Indeed, the Germans were working on that new plan, a follow-up to Barbarossa. They called it Fall Blau, or Case Blue. But as we'll see, this plan was quite different from the Stavka's imagination. Still, all the Soviet military plans are based on that idea that the Germans would renew their drive on Moscow. So they plan to push the Germans away from the capital. But as every military strategist learns early in war school, no plan survives contact with the enemy, let alone Hitler's or Stalin's meddling. Speaking of contact with the enemy. Back in episode 20, the beginning of the Soviet winter offensives, we looked at a Soviet amphibious assault on the Kerch Peninsula, the easternmost extremity of Crimea, which reaches toward the Taman Peninsula from the mainland of Russia. If you recall, that started on 26 December 1941, when two divisions of the Soviet 51st Army landed on eight beaches around Kerch, the city at the end of the peninsula. If you don't recall, you can go back and listen to episode 20. I'll wait. Anyway, those landings were meant as a diversion for the real attack by the Transcaucasian Front, renamed in January the Crimean Front. It was the first amphibious operation in Soviet history. The 44th Army landed at Feodosia, a city 100 kilometers or 60 miles west of Kerch, behind the German lines. See Map 2 on the website for the episode. As I said, this plan also did not survive first contact with reality. The first diversionary landings did not go well. The Red Army did not have specialized landing craft, but had to use whaling boats. A lot of soldiers drowned in the freezing water. And the Germans were ready for those who did reach the shore. They had spotted the Soviet buildup across the Kerch Strait the day before. By noon of the day of the attack, the Luftwaffe were bombing the Red Army from the air. When the 44th Army tried to land at the beaches of Feodosia, the Germans were ready there too, exacting over 40,000 casualties. Then, from 15th January to 3rd March, the Germans pushed the Red Army back to the eastern tip of the peninsula again, killing 6,700 and capturing 10,000, at the cost of 995 Germans killed, captured, or missing, or wounded. The 51st Soviet Army tried again, pushing slowly west from Kerch, but Manstein's 11th Army, along with Romanian forces, held them back. Over and over again for months, the Crimean Front, under Lieutenant General Dmitry Kozlov, attempted amphibious landings on the Kerch Peninsula and to move west to relieve besieged Sevastopol. Again and again, they failed. They didn't have anti-tank weapons or artillery, except for naval guns on ships in the Black Sea. 
and they didn't have air superiority. They were bombed relentlessly from the air, as well as by German heavy artillery. The Germans had heavy artillery. Still, Stalin demanded a general counteroffensive, and that included Crimea. So, on the 27th of February, 1942, Kozlov assembled 93,000 troops, 1,195 guns and mortars, 125 anti-tank guns, 194 tanks, including T-34s and 36 heavy KV-1s, plus 1,200 aircraft. Those numbers sound impressive. But the Soviets lacked sufficient fuel and ammunition. Many of those weapons in those numbers just didn't work. And the Russians, the Soviets had poor communications. Now, while in that month between the previous operation and the 27th of February, the Germans and the Romanian occupiers of Crimea had spent that time fortifying their positions. So when the 51st Army attacked across a flat plain, they ran smack into those defenses. Strong points defended by cross artillery fire. Close air support. The heavy KV-1 tanks also sank into the thick mud. Remember the Rasputitsa? It wasn't over yet. These stuck tanks and other vehicles were easily picked off by the Germans. By the 3rd of March, five days into this, Kozlov called off the attack and blamed the weather for the failure. So the Soviets tried again. That is, Stalin ordered them to attack again, starting on March 13th, 10 days later. They had 224 tanks and another 581 aircraft, mostly obsolete models. But Kozlov did not concentrate his armor, dispersing them among the rifle divisions. And the same thing happened again. Bogged down in the mud, Red Army men and tanks were destroyed by artillery and anti-tank guns. The Red Army tried again on 26th March, and then again from the 9th to 11th of April, each time defeated with heavy losses. By the end of April, the Crimean Front, including besieged Sevastopol, had lost 352,000 men, 40% of its manpower, 52% of its tanks, 25% of its artillery. In comparison, at the same period, the Axis forces suffered 24,120 casualties. That's a lot, but it is one-fourteenth of the losses of the Soviets. So, after this, there's another lull in the fighting as both sides build up their forces for another go, each thinking this would settle Crimea once and for all. But now we have to take a short break. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, 
Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. And all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. Thanks for coming back to Beyond Barbarossa. So before the break, we ended up with uh, both sides on the Crimean Peninsula, or more specifically, the Kerch Peninsula, um, preparing for their final assault, the knockout blow, to drive the enemy completely from Crimea. Erich von Manstein was the commander of the German 11th Army. He called his offensive Operation Trabanyog, or Bustard Hunt. A bustard, by the way, is the largest European game bird related to cranes. It does, it's not just a slur on the enemy. So, yeah, while the Germans are planning this attack, the Soviets are planning too. Despite the fact that the Luftwaffe has been interdicting their resupply by air and sea, because that's the only way to get supplies to the tip of this peninsula. Anyway, Stalin ordered the Crimean Front to prepare another attack. Now, the Soviets still had three whole armies, or the remnants of three armies, rather, in the Kerch Peninsula. The 51st Army in the north, a part of that eastern tip, had eight rifle divisions, three more rifle brigades, and two tank brigades. The five rifle divisions and two tank brigades of the 44th Army were on the southern side of the eastern tip, and the 47th Army was the reserve, four rifle divisions and one cavalry division. The Soviets also had 404 aircraft. In total, this was more than double the numbers that the Germans were bringing to the fight. But the Germans, though half the numbers, were far better equipped and supplied. They had tanks, they had Stug assault guns. These are self-propelled cannons, basically. And they were supported by 800 aircraft in the Fliegerkorps 8, or Air Corps. This was commanded by Wolfram von Richthofen, cousin to the Red Baron himself. These um, planes, including Stuka dive bombers and other bombers, as well as fighters, provided highly effective close ground support for the Germans. At 4.15 a.m. on the 8th of May, the Fliegerkorps 8 attacked by air, knocking out the 44th Red Army's communications. Then the panzers of the 11th Army moved in. Meanwhile, another German regiment landed by sea behind the Soviet lines. On the first day, the Germans captured more than 4,500 Soviet soldiers, losing 104 of their own dead and 284 wounded. The second day, the Germans trapped the 51st Army against the Azov Sea. By the 10th of May, the Germans destroyed all the Soviet tanks. The 51st Army, the survivors that is, surrendered on May 11th. On the 12th, the Flieger Corps dropped 1,780 bombs on Kerch, burning the city to the ground. In this disaster, 
the Soviets lost 176,000 men killed, wounded, and captured, 400 aircraft, 347 tanks, and 4,000 guns. Both Front Commander Kozlov and the political commissar, Lev Meklas, a favorite of Stalin's, were demoted. Of course, you wouldn't expect the Germans to stop after such a victory, even though they now had the whole Crimean Peninsula in their hands and were looking at water from that point. Nope, they're not going to stop. Von Richthofen's Flieger Corps, part of it anyway, went north to provide its spectacular close ground support in the next major confrontation, the Second Battle of Kharkiv. So, Kharkiv, also called in Russian Kharkov. That's the difference between the Russian and Ukrainian language. See, they are different cultures. Anyway, uh, the first Battle of Kharkiv was in October 1941. And it's important because Kharkov was, and Kharkiv is, a very important city. It's the second largest in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1941, with a population of over 900,000. By September 1941, uh, refugees fleeing the Germans had swelled that population to one and a half million. Kharkiv is a, or was a rail hub and a manufacturing center, making cement, uh, tractors, as well as uh, military equipment like mortars, submachine guns, ammunition, and more. The T-34 tank, often described as the best tank of the war, was designed and first built in Kharkiv. Kharkiv is also home to the Kharkov aircraft plant, which manufactured the Su-2 planes. Now, the Soviets, in the fall of 1941, as Germans were advancing, managed to hold them off until they could dismantle the factories and move them east. After that, on October 24th, the Germans captured the city and moved on to Rostov. One of the few minor successes of the Soviets' winter campaign of early 1942 was the barvenkovo lozovaya offensive in the south. The southwestern and southern fronts of the Red Army attacked what they perceived as a weak point in the German lines, which was south of Kharkiv. Their objective at the time was to drive the German army group south to the Sea of Azov, encircle it, and then destroy it. Of course, that didn't work. The Red Army did manage to take a bridgehead over the North Donetsk River in the Donbass region, near Izum, the scene of fighting and significant war crimes by Russian forces in 2022. They created a bulge, a salient. The trouble with a salient or a bulge in the lines is that you are now um, facing the enemy from three sides. But it is a move forward. So is it a problem or is it an opportunity? Marshal Semyon Timoshenko, commander of the Soviet Southwestern Strategic Direction, basically all the Red Army forces in Ukraine and southern Russia, comprising the southern and southwestern fronts, decided to treat that as an opportunity. With political commissar Nikita Khrushchev, yes, that Nikita Khrushchev, they proposed a pincer attack on Kharkiv that would coincide with the breakout from the Kerch Peninsula. 
Well, we just saw how that operation went. Timoshenko and Khrushchev's idea was that the German forces in the Donbass had been weakened not only by the winter, but also that earlier operation that had created the salient at Izium. However, they didn't know about the details of the rebuilding of Army Group South, which was, um, which was favored by Hitler. It got the, the lion's share of the reinforcements and the new equipment. And that included reinforcement by Romanian, Italian, and Hungarian armies. The main German army here at the time was the 6th Army, now under the command of General Friedrich Paulus. This is the same army that would soon assault Stalingrad, but I get ahead of myself. Anyway, Timoshenko's plan was a pincer movement, two simultaneous attacks to surround the 6th Army. On the 12th of May, five days after the failure of the Soviet operation on the Kerch Peninsula, the Red 9th Army attacked northward from Barvenkovo into the salient, advancing 10 to 15 kilometers on the first day. That distance depends on which source you follow. Antony Bivor says it was 15 kilometers. The Soviets, though, soon found more enemy forces than their intelligence had indicated. There were not one division, but two in the area. In addition to, quote, Bivor, Soviet forces were amazed by the evidence of German plenty in the positions they captured, with luxuries such as chocolate, tins of sardines and meat, white bread, cognac, and cigarettes. But their own casualties were heavy. End quote. Meanwhile, the 28th Army crossed the North Donetsk River near Vavchansk, called Volchansk in Russian, advancing toward Kharkiv. Bivor quotes a Red Army soldier. We advanced from Volchansk toward Kharkov and could see the chimneys of the famous tractor plant. The German aviation would not leave us in peace. They bombed us incessantly from three in the morning until nightfall with a lunch break of two hours. Everything was destroyed by the bombs. End quote. Timoshenko and the other Soviets quickly realized that they had attacked the Germans just as they were building up for their own attack. The Germans withdrew with heavy fighting and units of the Flieger Corps 8 moved up from Kerch to provide close ground support. Casualties were heavy on both sides. But the Germans were drawing the Soviets into a trap as they pulled back west of Krasnograd, then called Krasnograd in Russian. By the way, you can see all these places on Map 3 on the website for this episode. On the 17th of May, five days into the attack, Field Marshal von Bock sprang the trap, sending the 6th Army south and the 1st Panzer Army, under Ewald von Kleist, north from Barvenkovo, effectively surrounding the Red 6th and 57th Armies. Timoshenko and Khrushchev begged headquarters for reinforcements, to no avail. On the night of the 20th of May, Khrushchev phoned Stalin personally, or tried to. He got as close as Georgi Malenkov, the secretary of the Central Committee, to explain the situation and request permission to call off the offensive and withdraw. Malenkov relayed Stalin's response, quote, military orders must be obeyed, end quote. Antony Beaver says that Khrushchev's hatred for Stalin began from this point. By the time Stalin allowed the offensive to halt, it was too late. 
The encircled troops tried desperately to break out, even charging at the Germans with linked arms. As you can imagine, they were slaughtered. Beaver writes, quote, To avoid immediate execution, commissars stripped off their own distinctive uniforms and took those of dead Red Army men. They also shaved their heads to look more like an ordinary soldier. Upon surrendering, the troops stuck their rifles with bayonets fixed into the ground. Among the abandoned helmets and gas masks, they gathered up the wounded and carried them on improvised stretchers made out of rain capes. The German soldiers then marched the hungry and exhausted men off in columns, five men wide. End quote. The Germans took 240,000 prisoners and captured 2,000 field guns and most of the surviving tanks. Over 1,100 have been deployed for this operation. This was a terrible blow to Soviet morale, not to mention strength. Both Timoshenko and Khrushchev thought they'd be shot for it. But Stalin's punishment was, well, very Stalin. He just tapped out the ashes from his pipe onto Khrushchev's bald head and said it was a Roman tradition for a commander who lost a battle to pour ashes on his head as penance. For the Germans, it was another morale boost. It also encouraged them to move forward even harder and faster, as if they needed more encouragement to press ahead with the new offensive Case Blue, the drive for the precious Caucasian oil fields. In Crimea, with the Soviet toehold on Kerch destroyed, Manstein was able to devote all his attention and energy on finally capturing Sevastopol. But that's another big story. And so now I think that's a good point to halt this episode and to say thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. As always, there are some maps that you can see on the website for this episode. So please take a look at that. You can go to uh, beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. Whatever you type into the address bar in your browser, you'll get to the same place. You can also listen to the episode on the web directly or on my own website, writtenword.ca. Just click on the podcast button in the banner. I want to thank you for listening and I thank all to uh, those who have supported the podcast through Patreon. As always, until all Ukrainian refugees can return home safely, your financial support goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you like this episode, please consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app and also leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Doing so really helps spread the word to others who are interested in history. If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. Or yeah, write to me if you have comments, questions, suggestions, tips, ideas. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or you can reach me through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page or on my own uh, social media account, Scott Burry Author. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Till next episode. 
keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraine.